This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Capital City, Gentrification in the Real Estate State by Samuel Stein. Our cities are changing. Around the world, more and more money is being invested in buildings and land. Real estate is now a $217 trillion industry, worth 36 times the value of all the gold ever mined. It forms 60% of global assets, and one of the most powerful people in the world, the President of the United States, made his name as a landlord and developer. Samuel Stein shows that this explosive transformation of urban life and politics has been driven not only by the tastes of wealthy newcomers, but by the state-driven process of urban planning. Planning agencies provide a unique window into the way the state uses and is used by capital, and the means by which urban renovations are translated into rising real estate values and rising rents. Capital City explains the role of planners in the real estate state, as well as the remarkable power of planning to reclaim urban life. Also, if you're in New England, come see me interview Stein live in Providence, April 23rd, 7 p.m. at Riff Raff Books. Capital City, Gentrification and the Real Estate State by Samuel Stein. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm temporarily broadcasting from Santiago de Chile. The freedom of the open road is a bedrock one in American culture. Our relationships with cars are supposed to be deeply connected to the best of our relationships with everything else in life. This is why car companies have no shortage of pop songs to draw on for their television advertising. So much do we associate cars with the freedom of individual and national Ford movement that Dodge Ram infamously went so far as to sample a Martin Luther King speech figuring its pickup truck as a literal and figurative vehicle for American greatness. But what sort of free choice do people attempting to exercise this most basic right of human mobility really have? Not much at all. As Marx argued, free workers under capitalism are free in a deeply perverse double sense. They are free to work and free to starve if they do not work. In other words, The superficial freedom of selling one's labor power to a particular capitalist is embedded within a comprehensive system of capitalist domination. The worker is by no means free to rid themselves of capitalist exploitation and domination in general, unless, of course, that worker is ready to go hungry and die. The same dynamic holds true in transportation— Mythic automotive freedom obscures an order of brute domination. The choice to drive is, it turns out, not one that is freely made. 
It is, rather, a choice made for us, thanks to a system that sprawls development and eviscerates public transit, as I discuss in today's interview with geographer Cafoyato. And what that system reflects in space, generally, is the power wielded by capital, from the workplace to the home to everywhere in between, and, particularly, the racialized order of social domination and division that capital's rule imposes. The myth of automotive freedom obscures the reality of hours-long commutes amidst gridlock or on subway and bus systems suffering from austere budgets, paltry coverage, limited frequency, and decrepit equipment. It's a system that manufactures scarcity and then pits bus riders, strap hangers, motorists, cyclists, and pedestrians against one another in a desperate bid for precious space and resources. Uber and Lyft, the euphemistically named rideshare companies, exploit and deepen these conflicts, contradictions, and divisions, taking advantage of decrepit transit to lure riders into their flexibilized auto fleets. The result is declining transit ridership and yet more traffic on a so-called open road that is rarely ever that. These companies profit from capitalist-imposed impoverishment and austerity twice over, not only exploiting and perpetuating transit disinvestment, but also exploiting and perpetuating working-class precarity, recruiting neoliberalism's surplus labor pool as poorly paid drivers awarded the dubious honor of being classified as independent contractors. Those drivers' status as exploited workers, in turn, is obscured by the technological form of the app, which masquerades as a tool for consumer efficiency so as to hide its true core function, which is the casualization of labor relations as a means of accumulating profit and shunting off the costs of their workers' social reproduction. Segregation and inequality are the building blocks of American geography. It is so damn hard and expensive to get from one place to another because racial capitalism separates people by income and race across space and then exploits that differentiation for profit. The spaces we traverse in transit are in between places that are by necessity public. Under our system, however, those public spaces are degraded and asphyxiated because they are reduced to serving the private places they connect. If so many places are reduced to being a means of getting to someplace else, then the result is that there are too few places to simply be. The vast majority of public space is the street. But instead of street life, we have traffic. In other words, our public space has been privatized and handed over to cars. We constantly flee from public spaces because we aren't meant to inhabit, but rather to move through them. We are told that what's important is private property alone, its sanctity and its market value. And the value of property is, under racial capitalism, organized within the segregated metropolis that we inhabit which serve to legitimate variegated forms of exploitation and expropriation. It's no accident, then, that under our order of housing and educational apartheid, that it's so hard to get anywhere. On one level, 
white and more affluent people no doubt materially benefit from segregation by way of better schools and services. Meanwhile, poor people, particularly of color, are consigned to underfunded schools and marginalized ghettos. But the effects of segregation spread far beyond these zones of disinvestment and willful neglect. They also deeply shape our social and political culture, producing what Marx called idiocy, idiocy in its classical meaning of privatized social isolation. The costs of that mass idiocy have become all too clearly visible today, with a president who represents the cumulative effects of years of Rush Limbaugh piped into gridlocked commuters' angry cars and of Fox News interpolating hermetically sealed exurban couch potatoes. The car isn't made for the city, and so the car destroys the city. What emerged in its wake was a hideous suburban and exurban landscape, rationalized for an automobility that condemns us to always being in motion, or just as often, merely attempting to move. As the philosopher Andre Gortz argued in the brilliant 1973 essay, The Social Ideology of the Motor Car, quote, Ultimately, people can't get around conveniently because they are far away from everything. To make room for the cars, distances have increased. People live far from their work, far from school, far from the supermarket, which then requires a second car so the shopping can be done and the children driven to school. Outings? Out of the question. Friends? There are the neighbors. And that's it. In the final analysis, the car wastes more time than it saves and creates more distance than it overcomes. Thus, since cars have killed the city, we need faster cars to escape on superhighways to suburbs that are even farther away. What an impeccable circular argument. Give us more cars so that we can escape the destruction caused by cars. After killing the city, the car is killing the car. Having promised everyone they would be able to go faster, the automobile industry ends up with the unrelentingly predictable result that everyone has to go just as slowly as the very slowest, at a speed determined by the simple laws of fluid dynamics. Just when the car is killing the car, it arranges for the alternatives to disappear, thus making the car compulsory. So first the capitalist state allowed the rail connections between the cities and the surrounding countryside to fall to pieces, and then it did away with them. The only ones that have been spared are the high-speed intercity connections that compete with the airlines for a bourgeois clientele. There's progress for you. That was Gortz. And I should add that cars kill people, too. In the United States... More than 37,000 people died in car accidents in 2017. We take this to be sad but utterly normal. And this sort of unquestioned normalcy is precisely what hegemony looks like. Americans not only spend hours in their car, but countless more working to pay for their car, for its purchase, insurance, and, of course, for gas. If we don't have free time... We have no real freedom at all, and nothing so uselessly consumes our time, like transportation. As Gortz argued, quote, This seeming independence has for its underside a radical dependency. 
Unlike the horse rider, the wagon driver, or the cyclist, the motorist was going to depend for the fuel supply, as well as for the smallest kind of repair, on dealers and specialists in engines, lubrication, and ignition, and on the interchangeability of parts. Unlike all previous owners of a means of locomotion, the motorist's relationship to his or her vehicle was to be that of user and consumer, and not owner and master. This vehicle, in other words, would oblige the owner to consume and use a host of commercial services and industrial products that could only be provided by some third party. The apparent independence of the automobile owner was only concealing the actual radical dependency, including, wrote Quartz, on oil. Quote, Everyone was going to depend for their daily needs on a commodity that a single industry held as a monopoly. And so the car, and everything built to ensure its primacy, comprise key features of the material basis of fossil capitalism's potent ideology, and thus of the very order that we must urgently dismantle if we are to ensure human survival on this planet. This has all also been, quite literally, the material basis for the ideology of the ascendant new right. And then, more recently and terrifyingly, the deafening and bizarre primal scream of an empire fueled by constant outward motion that finally hit a wall. In short, the power of Fox News and talk radio are incomprehensible without the privatized isolation imposed by automobiles and by the suburbs that automobiles helped create and reproduce. We prize mobility above all else, and yet find ourselves either stuck or coerced into going where we'd rather not go. All because capital has a dedicated fast and flat lane to go where it pleases and at low cost. A mobility that compels localities to subordinate any other good to that of attracting money in motion and trying to keep it still. Meanwhile, immigrants are attacked for crossing borders that are designed to be open to capital. Huge numbers of especially young black men are stuck in human cages in the world's unrivaled carceral state. And most of us exercise nothing like full freedom over our own movements, which are determined by where we can find work and afford rent, and also, again, by our access or lack thereof to free time, resources, and social transit infrastructure. The majority of humans' waking lives are spent under the private dictatorship of the boss, where physical movement can be subjected to the most minute forms of techno-tailorist control. Tracking your steps across an Amazon warehouse or the speed at which you assemble a Big Mac. People with the means to do so have fled further and further afield, expanding a government subsidized exurban frontier in a desperate effort to protect their order of privatized isolation from the political, economic, and social contradictions that this very same order has created. And in recent decades, suburban idiots have returned to the city, driving up rents and ensuring that improvements to public infrastructure and transportation are immediately reaped as private profit by what Samuel Stein, who I'll be interviewing soon, aptly calls the real estate state. 
The results are that the people who most depend on public transit are pushed out of the places with what little public transit that exists. That and the constant creation of new geographies of inequality within which capital condemns our communities to either gentrification or disinvestment, and that condemn all of us to novel, cutting-edge forms of idiocy. The reclaimed city masquerades as what Jane Jacobs once idealized as a mixed-use paradise of encounter, yet that now functions as an elite shopping mall. People are driven from the city in part precisely because the car made it a hell. But then, efforts to undo car dominance and return the city to the people under the banner of livability mostly benefit the rich. Real estate capital ensures that the subways, bike lanes, and green space in revalorized urban centers from New York to San Francisco and beyond serve to raise the value of land and thus also of rents and profits. And so the livability isn't for the people who had lived in the city, but rather for a revanchist elite that had abandoned it. In other words, the sprawling suburban dystopia created to serve the affluent and isolate the urban poor created a scarcity of rapidly transitable space in so-called livable places. And in that scarcity, capital finds an opportunity to profit from its past disinvestment one that requires pushing the once centrally isolated poor to new ghettos on the margins. The car promised the masses, Gortz wrote, the bourgeois privilege of going faster than everyone else. But, wrote Gortz, quote, as the working class began to buy them as well, defrauded motorists realized they had been had. They had been promised a bourgeois privilege. They had gone into debt to acquire it. And now they saw that everyone else could also get one. What good is a privilege if everyone can have it? It's a fool's game. Worse, it pits everyone against everyone else. General paralysis is brought on by a general clash. For when everyone claims the right to drive at the privileged speed of the bourgeoisie, everything comes to a halt, and the speed of city traffic plummets in Boston as in Paris, Rome, or London, to below that of the horse car. At rush hours, the average speed on the open road falls below the speed of a bicyclist. In other words, the right for everyone to be a king or queen of the road has made everyone who cannot afford to traverse the metropolis by helicopter into serfs. Our transportation systems and the entirety of our built environment is both a microcosm of and a means of reproducing a pervasively dystopian political economic status quo of pervasive domination. Anyhow, I wanted to talk about cars in this introduction because my interview today is about the political economy and politics of public transit with Kafwe Ato, the author of the remarkable new book, Rights in Transit, Public Transportation, and the Right to the City in California's East Bay. And I'll close this intro by noting that Kafwe's central argument echoes one made by Gortz, who put it like so, quote, Above all, never make transportation an issue by itself. Always connect it to the problem of the city, of the social division of labor, 
into the way this compartmentalizes the many dimensions of life. One place for work, another for living, a third for shopping, a fourth for learning, a fifth for entertainment. The way our space is arranged carries on the disintegration of people that begins with the division of labor in the factory. But yes, before we get started, we need those of you who can afford to support us to do so so that we can afford to provide all of our episodes for free to those who cannot. We have a newsletter for supporters who contribute $5 a month or more. And we have left-wing book swag for supporters who contribute $10 a month or more. That's patreon.com slash the dig. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Thanks. And here's Kafoyato, a professor at the CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies and the author of Rights in Transit, Public Transportation and the Right to the City in California's East Bay from University of Georgia Press. He lives in Poughkeepsie, New York. Kafoyato, welcome to The Dig. Great to be here. This book is about public transit politics in California's East Bay, but one of its most powerful stories takes place in Poughkeepsie, New York, the much less populated place where you live right now. And this story sets the stage for your book so well. I'd like to steal that narrative device from you for this interview. So to start out, explain what you experienced one day during the fall of 2014 when you were waiting for a bus called the Shoppers Special. I was at the corner of Raymond and College, I think it was. There was a couple other people at the bus stop. I got there and I waited and I waited and the bus was not showing up. I called the dispatcher. You know, I said, I'm with a bunch of other people. Where's the bus? And basically they said, the bus is broken. There's no bus today. So yeah, sorry about that. (laughs) I don't even know if they said sorry about that. They said it's broken. I told the other people who were at the bus stop and they kind of shrugged and they're like, oh yeah, you know, it happens. And uh, I was like, that's crazy. That should never happen. I mean, if what, we only have one bus and if it breaks, there's no transit service. Yeah. You wrote, quote, Poughkeepsie residents were only one broken down bus away from being stranded and nobody seemed to think anything of it. You know, and I was writing the book at the time. So I was like, wow. Yeah, it became very real. And so what troubled you at least as much as the service's unreliability was it's a really car-dominated, not super-dense place. So the people on the bus there are the people who need to be on the bus, by and large. And they seemed utterly resigned to their fate. Exactly. I think that is disturbing. You tell one other poignant and revealing story from Poughkeepsie, about when a driver overheard passengers discussing the sad, pathetic state of bus service and told them, hey, you should attend a city council meeting to express your opinion on these matters since you're riders and they don't hear from riders. But ironically, they could not do so because the city council meetings took place later than the buses ran. 
Right. I should say it's better now. <laughs> the buses run later, thankfully. But yeah, at that time, you know, there's a, a big debate in Poughkeepsie over whether to merge the city system with the county system. There was a lot of misinformation and a lot of questions about what that would entail. And all those conversations were largely happening in the city council chambers or on the pages of the Poughkeepsie Journal. But to get to the city council, right, as you mentioned, if you were transit dependent would mean, would mean require taking a bus. And if the buses stopped running, you know, after the city council had started, then you couldn't participate in those conversations. And this all gets us to one of your core theoretical insights and a really brilliant one, that of idiocy, a concept that Marx and Engels used in its classical sense, meaning privatized isolation. Explain what Marx meant by the idiocy of rural life, what sort of relationships they believe that cities fostered in contrast or by contrast, and what French Marxist philosopher Henri Lefebvre, who you draw on a lot, what he made of it all. So when Marx and Engels are writing the manifesto, they're writing at a time when the kind of industrial city is like a new phenomenon. And I think their sense was that cities would provide a venue in which newly industrialized workers, people who had just been pushed off the land into the industrial city, would see their kind of shared immiseration, they'd be in the same factories, they'd be working alongside each other, that it would give them a sense of collective purpose. And it would be different from rural idiocy, the privatized isolation of life in the countryside, where people were kind of alienated from each other, where they didn't see each other as workers or part of the same class, the cities would rescue a considerable amount of the population from that idiocy. Lefebvre, when he develops his idea of the right to the city, 120 years after the manifesto, he's kind of dealing with a similar set of questions about cities' relationship to post-war capitalism. And the idea of the right to the city is kind of about rescuing people from urban idiocy the kind of privatized isolation of living in a city. Yeah, this whole post-war rise of the automobile and suburbs, and Lefebvre was responding to this Paris that had once been a city of worker barricades, becoming the city of privatized isolation. And Lefebvre's response was to articulate a program about how to fight against that and return the city to the people. You write, quote, In the face of both urban planners eager to kill the street and a new bourgeois aristocracy eager to colonize the central city, the right to the city was a right aimed at recovering the radical potential that Marx and Engels first described to cities. In sum, it was the right against the idiocy of urban life. Explain a little more about this political economy of urban idiocy and the role that transit and transportation, more generally, plays in either fomenting or fighting it. For many people, public transit is a central way for them to connect with the city, other people, 
not simply get to work, but to be part of urban life. So disinvestment from public transit or policies that limit transit access promote a certain degree of alienation. The collective sense, you know, that is foundational to cities and democracy is undermined when transit sucks. <laughs> you need kind of like a, a robust transit system to make democracy work, collective life to work, public life to work. I in places like Poughkeepsie, where you have a very abysmal transit system, that the collective potential, the ability for people to participate in the building of their own city is minimized. You know, it's an argument for transit that I think is an argument connected to the kind of radical potential of cities. I mean, if you can't get to the city council meeting to say what you think about public transit, because public transit won't get you there, that's an issue. But of course, there's all sorts of other issues that people want to have a voice on, affordability in the city, food access in the city, what development looks like, to the degree that people who lack a private automobile are prevented from participating in those discussions, it's a problem. And if it takes you two hours to get from your home to your workplace, that is fundamentally undermining the radical potential of cities, because that's not only time that can't be spent with one's families or friends or doing whatever else, but it's time that can't be spent engaging politically. That's also a good point. Yeah. When we think of transit the way that you that you put it as part of these larger questions of what what sort of cities we will and should inhabit and how we will and should inhabit them, it connects it to everything from housing, schooling, gentrification and density to street life, the rights of the homeless to take up visible space to policing. And one really striking example that you point to is how Google buses, essentially a privatized form of public transit, became a central flashpoint in this broader struggle over the future of San Francisco as a city. Yeah, the kind of emergence of private public transit, private shuttles developed by large tech firms to cart elite workers from gentrifying neighborhoods in San Francisco and the East Bay to these Elysium-like campuses um, <laughs> in, in San Jose. They became a flashpoint, and I think deservedly so, yeah. in San Francisco for debates on gentrification, housing affordability, and the degree to which it was becoming really impossible for, not even talking about working class people, but kind of like just basically middle class people to live in the city anymore. I mean, people are like commuting from like warm springs to to work in to work in San Francisco. It's just absolutely unaffordable. So, you know, you can look at debates over transit and see kind of the contours of broader debates around class in cities, around who can access the city, around what cities are becoming. And it's not just Google buses, it's all sorts of debates now around new forms of, of transit and, and what they should look like. I don't know if you saw this, this is my, it must have been two years ago, but Elon Musk was talking about his new Hyperloop 
you know, his, his the, the boring company. It's like a, he's like building a tunnel between New York and Washington. He wants to build a tunnel between New York and Washington, D.C. And he has this comment where he's like, everyone hates public transportation. Do you want to be, you know, scrunched up with other people? Uber has ads in public transit denigrating public transit. I think I've seen them on the MTA right. in New York. Yeah, exactly. It's, I don't know, fear, disdain for public modes of transportation because, it's, of course, you don't want to be rubbing shoulders with the rabble. The kind of Google bus phenomenon, which was, you know, these tech workers are going to be able to go to their campuses in comfort with cappuccino machines and not have to take, not rely on BARD, AC Transit, uh, Muni. So class war takes place in all sorts of different venues, transit being one of them. It's easy to look at transit issues and debates in those terms, and I think sometimes it's helpful to do that. <laughs> I think it's extraordinarily helpful, particularly after reading your book. And in the case of Google buses, the connection was both powerfully symbolic and also that symbolism was rooted in some quite concrete material conditions, as symbolism often is. The data that you cite shows that evictions in San Francisco were indeed concentrated in areas close to Google bus stops. Right. And that, I think that that data came from the eviction mapping project, which is a great project. So what's also interesting in the book, this relationship between public transit and real estate, you know, the Google buses are kind of a clear contemporary example of the ways in which new elite transit modes can inflate the value of a particular block. But that's kind of like the history in many ways, the history of transit in the Bay Area. You can think about the development of BART and the kind of support it got from the Bay Area Council, which in a moment when there was massive disinvestment from cities and capital flight and white flight, the idea of a regional rail service to kind of save the central city meant that BART took the form it did, where there's kind of like massive gaps between particular stops. You know, they don't serve local needs. They funnel people into the central city from the kind of exurbs and the East Bay. But then if you go even further back, you get the development of the key system itself, which was originally a, an arm of, of real estate, where you have Francis Borock Smith buying up massive amounts of territory in the East Bay, then running tracks to it, and then with that, the ability to sell those parcels off to people at a profit. The kind of relationship between transit and real estate capital, I mean, think about New York and the BQX, the streetcar gentrification that you see in Cincinnati or D.C. You know, we've seen this movie before. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah, no, that it's a, it's a very important point because as dystopian as neoliberalism often seems and is, it's not just with the rise of neoliberalism that transit comes to reflect the demands of capital. You mentioned the key system that you write about, the BART system, which you write was constructed with a lot of support from downtown real estate interests to try to bring people back into the, the center city. And the same took place, you write, in Washington, D.C. with the construction of the metro. Explain the political economy of mid to late 20th century transit and how that shifted throughout the neoliberal period, especially now that capital 
has really re-entered the city in force. Yeah, I don't. I think there's a lot of continuity actually. So you have the Urban Mass Transit Act of 1964. You do have kind of a transit renaissance to some degree. That is, you have federal investment in building new transit systems. One, of course, is BART. Another is Metro and DC. MARTA kind of emerging in the the same sort of period. MARTA is is that Atlanta? Oh yeah, Mar yeah, in Atlanta. Um, I would put these in kind of the same realm of the federal response, the urban crisis, the commitment to federal involvement in trying to kind of save cities. The story where you know you're generally told is that you know the 1970s in California with Proposition 13, and then. Uh, with the New York fiscal crisis, the kind of retrenchment of the federal government from doing anything to help cities or to help the kind of impoverished in cities. I think today, you know, the political economy of transit, especially in the last five years, it's a much more complicated landscape. I mean, the federal government has, you know, since 1996, totally withdrawn operating subsidies to transit. They do provide a lot of capital funding, but operating subsidies are cast off to the states. But you also have like Uber and Lyft and scooters and boutique streetcar projects that are generally the darlings of real estate capital. Um, Bespoke forms of individualized transit on the vanguard of urban idiocy. That's a great way to put it. The kind of these isolating idiotic transit modes, obviously, you know, with these kind of new, um, new experiments, you know, there's obviously the labor, labor issues, labor concerns around driver rights and that sort of thing. But there's also kind of a number of studies have tried to parse the relationship or make sense of what Uber, Lyft, and these new ride-hailing companies are, will mean or, or what their effect is having on, on, on transit. I think the UC Davis study is probably the most notable, which was basically observing that a lot of these services are skimming transit riders, that people are taking Lyft and Uber instead of public transit, which from an environmental perspective is obviously uh, you know, not great in terms of congestion, the impact of having more cars on, on, on the road is an issue as well. But I think your point about the kind of individualization of transit and the kind of the collective promise of mass transit, we've got to be clear about the importance of mass in mass transit and the importance of public in public transit and not confuse these new modes with anything replacing that. It's the persistence and reemergence in new forms of either automobile dominance or things that sort of echo automobile dominance, which are baked into the beginning of this post-war story when you have downtown real estate interests funding transit systems that are fundamentally oriented towards suburban commuters coming into the downtown and thus making for a transit system that even though it's meant to save the downtown, is fundamentally anti-urban and bolstering of an automobile-centric, suburban-dominated metropolitan system. Right, which is the argument that um, the guy I quote is uh, Alan Witt, I think, and his book is really good, and on BART especially. Along those lines, one question of the right to the city 
is how the life of our cities depends upon how our metropolitan regions are organized and governed. Because cities, of course, are just one piece of these massive multi-jurisdictional conurbations, which include not only cities, but also older inner ring suburbs that are increasingly diverse and working class and facing what were once thought of as, quote, urban problems. And then, of course, these metastasizing exurbs of all sorts stretching into the paved erstwhile farmland. This multi-jurisdictional municipal fragmentation is, is foundational for residential and school segregation and also for a sort of segmentation that allows for capitalists to hide in their mobility and thus put downward pressure on regulations and wages, partially privatizing public services, which all adds up to, amongst other things, differentiated varieties of idiocy. Where does this sort of like metropolitan spectrum of the political economy of idiocy fit into your analysis? I'm not I'm not sure how to tackle that. I mean, I think the you know, there is now a kind of burgeoning literature on the suburbanization of poverty. As it becomes increasingly hard to live in central cities because of affordability issues, you have people being pushed out to places that are more affordable. Where I live, like Poughkeepsie, you know, there's a lot of transit workers, uh, New York City transit workers, who I see on the train now in full uniform. That's a long commute, right? But it's also, you can still buy a house here. There is a movement of people with less means out to areas where transit is unavailable, which in some cases forces them to take on the costs of owning a car. I think it raises real questions and issues about transit and transit investment, about land use and, and how we're organizing our metropolitan areas. You know, the people who've been living environmentally sustainable lives by taking transit for years, often because they can't afford a car, because they, you know, live in areas where it doesn't make sense to have a car, are now being pushed to areas where they have to do things that both impoverish them and are environmentally unsustainable. That does seem both idiotic in the classic sense as in privatized isolation, but also idiotic in the kind of, wow, it's, we, we've got to rethink how we're organizing our metropolitan regions with respect to transportation. In a sense, the system we live under creates two different forms of idiocy. I mean, many different forms, but for my purposes in this question, two. On the one hand, what your book is more about, which is the idiocy created by a woefully insufficient transit system, particularly for those who depend on it. And then on the other hand, there's the idiocy of being trapped in one's cars on American streets and highways. I want to quote from a piece by Boston Globe columnist Jeff Jacoby that he wrote a while back where he's complaining that he had to start commuting via public transit after the paper relocated to downtown offices. And I want to read from it because for me, this column is maybe the ideological apotheosis of automotive idiocy. Jacoby writes, quote, The relative convenience of even a short public transit commute is no compensation for the loss of autonomy it entails. When you drive, you have auto-mobility. You travel where you choose, by the route you choose, with the company you choose, and at the time you choose. 
You can take your time and meander, or put pedal to the metal. You can surround yourself with silence, or listen to talk radio, or blast Born to Run from your car speakers. You can go shopping in the rain and come home with 12 bags of groceries. You can be a designated driver in the wee hours of the night. You can get your kicks on Route 66. The values we most esteem as Americans are embodied in our car culture. It isn't by chance that so many American songs exalt in the delights of owning, cruising, or fooling around in cars. How many anthems have been penned about the happy existence of traveling with other strap hangers in a government-operated conveyance over which no passengers have any control? One last word before this 4th of July, courtesy of a splendid 2010 Dodge Challenger commercial. There's a couple of things America got right. Cars and freedom. George Washington couldn't have said it better. There's a lot of idiocy here that I'd like you to respond to. One piece of that idiocy is just that we really can't overemphasize the degree to which the built environment created since the mid-20th century from the isolated exurban home tuned into Fox News to the isolated exurban commuter listening to Rush Limbaugh how this built environment at which transportation is really at the center is the material basis for our politics, including the conservative reaction that shaped so much of the the end of the 20th century. That piece is amazing in so many different ways. I mean, there's also a kind of um, anti-social component of, of all that the kind of right to be left alone, that I don't want to be part of this collective anything. Yeah, I think is, as you say, a kind of central component of a certain type of conservatism, I guess, that, you know, as you also say, is central to how we've built our environment. I'd have to think more about this, but, you know, the collective project of something like a Green New Deal just to make it contemporary, or ambitions of recreating cities in ways that are more equitable, I mean, are totally anathema to that sort of proud, stupid individualism. (laughs) I mean, I think there are a lot of people like that, and it just does not resonate. Maybe that article resonates with some people, but it just does not resonate at all. Part of me is like, it also has to be defeated. (laughs) um, Statements like that, that are kind of bold out in the open and proudly idiotic are amazing. (laughs) You said that this is something that that has to be defeated, which reminds me of something else I wanted to ask you about, which is that you make make an argument about how to think about the various ideologies through which people approach public transit. You cite Jason Henderson's framework that there are progressive conservative and neoliberal ideologies. But you argue that the way people think about public transit and transportation, and really about anything, I would add, is always rooted in political economy. Explain your argument and why transit justice and the broader fight for the right to the city requires a lot more than changing people's minds, which I think is a trap people can get caught in a lot. Like, oh, the problem in American politics is that too many people have bad ideas in their head. I really like Jason Henderson's book. Um, and there's a component in which I think 
you see this all in all sorts of different areas where it's like if only progressives or people who care about the environment lived into their values by ditching their cars and by getting on public transit. It's kind of like this finger-waving kind of um, reproach of people who are being hypocritical. Some of that's inevitable, and maybe it's not all too bad. But I think once you take a kind of perspective that looks at the kind of material interests of people and the material constraints on people, then the question of individual personal activism where politics is only individual. It just doesn't make any sense. Like the, the politics is necessarily collective. It necessarily involves individual and individual. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, exactly. That it's just ideas, you know, and obviously I'm academic. I care about ideas. <laughs> I write, you know, it's like, it's, you know, but I think like there's a kind of overemphasis on that and it's a trap. And there's a similar liberal trap in this idea that Donald Trump is primarily president because a bunch of deplorable people, and we all know what kind of people those are, uh, in kind of like liberal, you know, metropolitan milieus, we're thinking of like certain types of white Confederate flag waving rednecks because those people have bad ideas in their head, not because we live under a neoliberal oligarchy. And, you know, building coalition politics around sustainable cities is going to require a lot more than guilt tripping people. It's going to take mobilization of, of power and people power. And kind of that end of that chapter is like, well, there's, you know, we have to think about the people who ride the bus who have a material interest in making transit better. We have to think about transit workers who kind of have an interest in, in their own system. We have to think about working class people who are one paycheck away or one loan payment away from having their car repossessed, who will need transit. These are all sorts of people who, you know, you want to mobilize to advance a more equitable city because they know what an unequal city is. <laughs> they can see it and they can feel it. You have a really nice line along those lines, quote, where the goal is universal bus coverage or transit first policies, an effective politics will focus less on convincing individual progressives to get out of their cars, to live by their principles, and more on draining the coffers of the privileged, so as to create a city in the image of those traditionally excluded from it, the poor, the transit-dependent, and the working class. I said it well, I think. <laughs> One thing I find really powerful about your book and about Lefebvre is how both connect the way the built environment of a place and its political economy structure, one, our everyday kind of quotidian experiences, whether of encounter or isolation, just like how we go about our daily lives in a place, how you and Lefebvre connect that to, two, the issue of what sort of spaces are conducive for or attenuating of political struggle and democratic life. And you quote David Harvey writing, Quote, only when it is understood that those who build and sustain urban life have primary claim to that which they have produced, and that one of their claims is to the unalienated right to make the city more after their heart's desires, will we arrive at a politics of the urban that will make sense. Explain for people who aren't familiar with the right to the city and this 
Marxist geography that takes off from Lefebvre through David Harvey to you. (laughs) Explain the implications for Marxist analysis of looking beyond the workplace in this way and thinking of the fight over production in these much broader terms. When Lefebvre is writing, he was a Marxist philosopher. He had been like part of the French Communist Party, you know, kind of had a strained relationship with the party. But by this time, he had become really alienated from the French Communist Party and and was trying to kind of rethink Marxism in the post-war period. I mean, and think about what that entailed. I mean, he was writing in a context in which, in some ways, France was every year more prosperous than it had been the previous year. You had real GDP growth at like 4% for like, you know, at least 10 years in the 60s, but it would last until the early 1970s. You had, you know, new consumer goods. I mean, factories were kind of moving out to the suburbs or uh, there was a growth of the service sector. And so many Marxists at this point are trying to rethink like, wait, the, the working class is like, they just want washing machines and to live in the suburbs now. <laughs> what happened to the kind of like... uh what happened to the radical industrial proletariat? Yeah, and of course, then there's the example of the Soviet Union, which, it, you know, from Lefebvre's point of view, was incredibly alienating. And the revelations from the secret speech, you know, and, and the kind of dystopian image. And so it was kind of wrestling with... Not to mention the invasion of, of Hungary. Yeah, exactly. And so it's kind of this question of, okay, what... What is this all about? And at the same time that Paris and many cities in both uh, Western Europe and in the United States were undergoing massive urban renewal, but at the expense of, of working class people. And so I think the idea of the right to the city was kind of an acknowledgement of all those realities and a sense that working class solidarity, maybe it wasn't going to be one based around the factory, something that was disappearing. Maybe it was going to be based around the transformation of the city itself and people's position in the city and their relationship to it and struggles over social reproduction and in daily life, to use kind of Lefebvre's own own language around it, which is very abstract and vague, I find. Which made it all the more impressive to me as an undergraduate, I have to admit. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> right, wow, this is right. confusing. <laughs> Sorry, <go ahead. laughs> and I, I think Penny Lewis's and Miriam Greenberg's book is, is really good in that kind of notion of as much as we organize, you know, shop room floors, it's also about organizing neighborhoods and that, that sort of thing. And, you know, I think David Harvey in his own reinterpretation of the right to the city is doing something similar. Of course, his approach has been framed by his own decades long analysis of the role of cities as, you know, central to both capitalist production and the absorption of, of, of surplus value. All that to say, the sense that struggles over transportation or struggles over public space or struggles over housing are part of a quote-unquote Marxist project was kind of one of Lefebvre's early, if not inchoate, contributions, which was, we got to think about more than what's going on in in the factory, not only because (laughs) factory isn't the factory of 
Engels is Manchester, but also because people are workers for some of the day, but then they go home. <laughs> There's a whole life outside of the workplace that matters, and that involves how you get to work, your access to a decent life, to parks, to all those things. And, and those two are need to be struggled over, and those two are, you know, sites of conflict between different groups in society. There's another Marxist notion that your book touches on, though maybe only implicitly, that of hegemony, because one goal of your book, it seems, is to make strange this horrible state of transit affairs that seems so normal, as you pointed out in Poughkeepsie when people were just like, yep, no bus today, because it seems, and it seems so normal because it seems like the only possible state of affairs. What is your take on the project, both your book, but also, of course, more importantly, the work that organizers are doing, the sort of organizers that you write about, that they're doing to demystify and denaturalize the status quo state of affairs so that that state of affairs appears to people as the outrage that it truly is and so that people understand that the way things are are not the way they must be. Defeating the Jacobies of the world who seem to be the spokespeople for the kind of dominant mode of thinking about transit will be and is essential. How you do that, I think, is an open question. The thing is, you know, like there are all sorts of interests that are invested in the way things are with respect to our cities and with respect to our transit systems. And maybe maybe one of the goals of anything approaching radical scholarship is providing a mapping of all those interests, like a, a cartography of all the interests that are invested in, in the way the world exists or the way the city exists now, and figuring out where the weaknesses are and, and how to kind of move them out of the way. Um, to put it crassly. So there's that. I mean, there's the kind of question of, well, how, what does a transition look like and how rapid will it be and what will the cost be? Will we have to hospice out the old system and bring in a new system? And what would that involve? Or do we have time? And I just feel totally <laughs> unable to answer any of those things. One thing I, I like about the book is it brings in organized labor as one actor in this in addition to community groups, so people who are organized around a workplace, in addition to people who are organized around a public service, which they feel that they have a right to, and combining those groups, uh, you know, is one way to think about it. But, I, but other than that, I'm not sure. But I think you're right. Yeah, the, the, the response I have is to kind of just, like, laugh or to, like, point at it and kind of be like, really? But I feel like there's got to be a more intentional war of uh, both ideas and organization that works against that very entrenched way of thinking. And, you know, I'd hope that the book is part of that. <laughs> um, but there's all sorts of other people who I think are trying to do the same thing. Just reading a piece in Jacobin magazine about fair free transit. I thought that was such an interesting and compelling idea. You cite um, a free transit campaign in your book, sort of along the lines that we're discussing now over the... Oh, yeah, the Toronto case, yeah. Yeah, which is sort of about yeah. the, like, how to think about these sorts of fights for hegemony. 
you heard Rebecca Shine, a leader in the Greater Toronto Workers' Assembly, which had a, a, a their free transit campaign. And she said, quote, What is exciting to me about the free transit campaign is the expression of a radical anti-capitalist principle, the outright decommodification of public goods and services, actually serves in this instance to invite, rather than foreclose, genuine political dialogue about values, tactics, and strategies. The invitation to imagine free transit is an invitation to imagine themselves not simply as consumers of a commodity, but as members of a public entitled to participate in conversation about what kind of city they want to live in. That sort of demand for like fair free transit, I think in a place like Poughkeepsie, it's actually a more feasible thing given just how little fares contribute to the overall operating costs, like 10%. But I think you're right that those sorts of seemingly radical demands open up all sorts of space for seeing what the hegemony is and for seeing how idiotic pieces like Jacobi's are. There's another book on fare-free transit called Fare-Free Transit, Why We Don't Pay to Ride the Elevator, which makes a similar set of <laughs> arguments about, about fare-free transit, which, and I think does the same sort of thing. It's like, oh, I never thought about it that way. Maybe we're thinking about transit all all wrong. And we, we've seen this in a lot of different venues recently, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez calls for a top marginal rate of 70%. It was the, the state of affairs prior to that just seems so so normal that alternatives seemed un, not only unsayable, but unthinkable. And then the alternative was said. And now it's being said again and again and again. It's an exciting time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. These sorts of demands, while their material impact is yet to be determined, they do have a kind of like rhetorical power and discursive power that I don't think can be overstated, understated. It's it's nice that we're having kind of debates and about these sorts of things. It's important. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. Hello, this is your host, the person you've been listening to, Daniel Denver. I'd like to tell you about some upcoming events. First, for those of you in southern New England, I have two live tapings of The Dig coming up in Providence shortly after I return from Chile. On April 23rd, I'm interviewing Sam Stein on his book, Capital City, Gentrification and the Real Estate State at Riff Raff Bookstore and Bar, which is located at 60 Valley Street. And then, from May 2nd through the 4th, I'm hosting Slavery's Hinterlands, a big symposium on capitalism and slavery, featuring a bunch of amazing academic and public historians, and also radical history tours of Slater Mill, the John Brown House, and College Hill. It's going to be very, very good. And lastly, I wanted to plug an event for all the socialists fiercely committed to feminism and racial justice out there. It's the Socialist Feminist Convergence, taking place in Philadelphia from April 26th through the 28th, and bringing together activists from all over the country with the goal of sharing skills, 
deepening relationships, and developing a shared strategy to place anti-racist feminist work at the center of the growing socialist movement. It will feature a keynote address by author and activist Tithi Bhattacharya and a conversation with labor leader Patty Eakin. It's organized by the Socialist Feminist Working Group of DSA, and the meeting is free, open to all, and will involve panels and workshops by a variety of socialist feminists from many organizations. So register, donate, find out more details at socfemphilly.wordpress.com. That's S-O-C-F-E-M philly.wordpress.com. There are links to all three of these events right there for your perusal in the show notes. So check them out. One part of your argument about the right to transit as part of this broader right to the city is that it must extend way beyond narrow liberal conceptions of a civil right to transit. The the limits of narrowly racial civil rights-based claims you write have been illustrated by the last half century of American history. Formal integration of public transit, which is obviously a good and very important thing, but, but it has coincided with the rapid decline of public transit systems as a whole, worsening the situation, of course, for black transit riders and for others who are transit dependent because they're poor or disabled or elderly, and also for everyone because society as a whole suffers when it is atomized by automobile dominance and the spatial order that automobile dominance imposes. In other words, a narrowly race-based civil rights liberalism on its own, as narrowly understood, under neoliberalism, leads to a more racially equitable distribution of austerity and idiocy. You write, quote, the problems facing public transportation are often less a result of majoritarian tyranny than they are the tyranny of the political economy itself. Explain the civil rights approach, its benefits and its limitations, and how it plays out in the real life politics of transit. Transportation was a key point of struggle for the civil rights movement for Black Americans in the American South, for the civil rights struggles of people with disabilities in the late 1970s, early 1980s, those provide very powerful models of social change around transportation. I don't want to dismiss those. Those are Certainly. those are extremely important. I think the argument I'm making is that traditional civil rights, the way we generally understand them is a promise to minorities that their rights will be respected, even in the instances when the majority deems them has some other idea about what is politically expedient. Do you know what I mean? The power of civil rights is that they are protections against the tyranny of the majority. And I think that's important. But I also think there's a tyranny of a different sort. And it's the tyranny of the Google bus. It's the tyranny of the political economy of cities itself. It's the tyranny of real estate capital, which, which is not many people at all, <laughs> uh, working its way with cities and with transit in ways that I think require a different notion of rights or a different sense of, of rights, which means focusing on a certain degree of class power of what is happening to working class people who are Black, white, Asian, disabled, all sorts of people who 
can't access the city because the city is being recreated in the image of, in most cases, and in many cases, a very small elite who are reaping the benefits of the city. And I think it's the thread that I try to weave through the entire book. It's a very different sense of, of rights, but I think one that's necessary. So let's say we do fight on civil rights terms. We've got to make sure that there are wheelchair lifts on public buses. And that was a huge fight and a very important fight. Let's make sure that we are allowing African-Americans to work at transit companies and to access buses. But then like, you get all sorts of situations like in Poughkeepsie where there's just no bus at all. There's no bus. Equality, it's like fighting for equality of nothing. We want... We want an equal stake in this non-thing. This equality of, of austerity and scarcity. Yeah, yeah. We're fighting over equality over scraps. Which is a critique that holds true outside of transportation, of course. It's central to this brand of neoliberal liberalism that portrays an ideally just order as a racially and gender diverse ruling class and a similarly diverse oppressed class, which, of course, does not mean that we should exclusively emphasize so-called universal programs that will benefit a so-called universal working class subject because that universal subject does not automatically exist. It has to be made through struggle. But it, but it does mean, I think, if I'm reading your argument right, that racial justice, disability rights, and so on must be linked to a struggle to transform the, the political economy or they won't even be victorious in their own terms. That's a key point. And I think it'll only become more and more, that type of argument will become even more and more important as we proceed further in this kind of um, elite backlash, which we can expect from all the stuff we're talking about and all that's happening with, you know, Green New Deal and AOC and all that sort of thing. It's, I mean, just think about Uber's rhetoric around racial equity. It's a very interesting thing to behold. <laughs> um, it's kind of like workshopped notion of, okay, so, you know, taxis aren't going to this part of the city because of racism, which is true. <laughs> it's not untrue. But then it's like, well, Uber is now providing trips to those places. And this is where it gets kind of weird. It's like also undermining the public sector, working relations, working class wages more generally, which are going to impact those same neighborhoods. And ultimately undermining the demand for mass transit to those same neighborhoods, thus ultimately undermining service to those neighborhoods. Right. And it's like, okay, what's the cost here? You know, I think there's an element of the book that is interested in advancing a set of rights that are useful <laughs> given the current context which is weird because it means I'm talking about like French philosophers from the 1960s or bearded radicals in the 1840s. But hey, <laughs> <laughs> it works, I think. So this doesn't all, of course, mean that this focus on the big picture does not mean that we shouldn't also focus on the situation and conditions of the most marginalized, exploited, and oppressed people in society, much of your book is laser-focused on the fights and condition of transit-dependent people. To me, there was an implicit echo of the Combahee River Collective's assertion that, quote, if black women were free, 
It would mean that everyone else would have to be free since our freedom would necessitate the destruction of all the systems of oppression. Do you believe that foregrounding the rights and the conditions of the most marginalized and excluded, in this case, the transit dependent, helps us to develop rather than hindering a political vision for everyone's liberation? You know, by focusing on people who don't have any other option except to take transit and fighting for their right to access transit, I think that's a good starting point because these are individuals who need this very thing to participate equally in society. I also think it's important to remind people who are not transit dependent that they could be transit dependent and that it doesn't take too much to be there that your interests are also in providing a robust safety net for all these reasons. But then I think there's also the kind of a tension between that and advocating for a transit system, not because it's just for the transit dependent or because it makes the lives of the transit dependent better, but I, there's also kind of a broader argument about it being what a just society requires and a more environmentally sustainable society, you know, focusing on transit's role in the city at large, in addition to the impact poor transit has on the least advantaged. And I mean, you can do both. Maybe there is an intention. I, I think you can do both. And you do, I, I, I think I do do both. <laughs> I try to do both in the book. You quote an AC transit board member who argues that the system narrowly focusing narrowly serving the poorest people, a sort of welfare on wheels, makes transit politically weak. He said, quote, I'm not sure that's healthy in the long run because transit becomes a program. And in this country, programs don't live long. What lives long are things that have a widespread appeal. And on the one hand, I definitely think it's important to to foreground the the struggles of transit dependent people when thinking about transit. But he also has a point here. Means-tested welfare is, in reality, subject to successful right-wing and neoliberal attack, while universal programs like Social Security have built a more universal constituency to defend them. What's your take? Public transit is, in many places, it's crappy, but it is a universal system. You could, you need a buck twenty-five. It's you can anyone can take it. And I think the threat is, of course, and you see this more and more, where people are like, "Why do we need public transit? Why don't we just give vouchers for transit-dependent people to take Uber?" This is an actual thing in some communities. That is truly dystopian. You're transforming a kind of universal system to a means-tested or some system you have to apply for. And I think that's dangerous. And, and just think about the example of the fight for wheelchair lifts on public buses. I mean, that was an explicit fight against the kind of programming of transportation. In the late 1970s, after the um, Rehabilitation Act of 1973, which gave people with disabilities rights to public utilities for the first time, like ramps and wheelchair lifts and elevators. You know, a lot of communities responded by providing just paratransit service. They said, we're offering an equivalent service, which is we'll pick you up at your house and take you wherever you go. You know, from a person who's not who doesn't have disabilities, you're like, wow, you're giving free curb to curb service to these 
people as you know so that they have access to public transit but the whole fight for wheelchair lifts was like yeah we don't want this special service we want inclusion yeah we don't want to have to call the dispatcher at a paratransit arm of public transit service and say we're going on a date can you come pick me up or worse yet we would like a trip and the dispatcher says well where do you want to go let me see if it's on the list of places that you can go because of costs Having wheelchair lifts on public buses, it's about being part of the public, about accessing this universal service. There are dangers, sometimes they're very seductive dangers, about turning kind of universal programs to means-tested services for the most marginalized. And this has played out in the, the debate over Bernie's proposal for free college, people being like, well, why not let's just make it free public college for people who make under set amount. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, no, we the We don't do that with public K through twelve schools. <laughs> you know, like. Right, 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 right. Yeah. I mean it, it's just uh it's idiotic in both senses of the word. It's dumb in terms of policy because it just means that it'll get undermined. But it's also dumb because it's like separating people from the public life of, of cities, kind of excluding them. Now it's also important to say that Paratransit is great. Like we need public transit. There's all sorts of people who, for all sorts of reasons, cannot use a public bus and who require paratransit services. But the fight for wheelchair lifts in the 1970s and 1980s, where people with wheelchairs were literally throwing themselves in front of public buses to protest. Adapt. Yeah, adapt. Was about inclusion about being able to board a bus, not explain where you're going, but just put in your fare and be with everyone else. So you write about the civil rights lawsuit that's really revealing against the MTC. And it is sort of grounded in the civil rights approach we were discussing earlier, but it ends up confronting not only this conservative argument about racial justice not being a real issue in post-racial America, but also maybe more consequentially, this neoliberal argument that the MTC wasn't discriminating, but just pursuing this important goal of ensuring the region's, quote, global competitiveness. Can you explain the the lawsuit and the way it played out and what that all revealed for you? I might have the dates wrong, but I think the Derensburg case was first filed in 2006 or seven around this period. And it was uh, basically... Um, uh, Title VI case, which is the plaintiffs, which was a group of minority riders, accused the Metropolitan Transportation Council, which is a regional body representing the interests of the entire Bay Area, uh, I think nine counties in total, and redistributes federal funds and state funds to the 26 different operators in the, the Bay Area. So there's a lot of different operators in, in the Bay Area. There's AC Transit, Sam Trans, Golden Gate Transit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And their accusation was that the MTC was discriminating against minority riders because it was funneling more money to BART than to AC Transit. And AC Transit is a majority minority transit service provider. That is, most of their riders are racial minorities. BART, I mean, it has a significant amount of minority riders, but it, it's 
there's also a lot of white riders. And so the argument was basically that the MTC's overfunding of BART was a violation of Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. In some ways, it was kind of an attempt to reapply a lawsuit that had resulted in a successful consent decree in Los Angeles that had been put forward by the Los Angeles Bus Riders Union that had kind of used the same legal technique, which was to focus on disparate impact discrimination. That is, a policy can be neutral on its face, but to the degree it has an a disproportionate negative impact on minority riders, then it can be in violation of the Civil Rights Act. That was the case. You know, when it went up to the appeals court, the judge was like, this is crazy. You're, you know, in this day and age, racial discrimination in the Bay Area of all places. I mean, Berkeley, come on, <laughs> you got to be kidding. Um, and then there was also the kind of other side of that, which was, that the lower court, and this was carried on to the appellate court, was basically like, we recognize that there's a disparate impact here, but disparate impact discrimination, you have to go through all these hurdles, which is to prove that first, that it can be remedied without violating the quote-unquote business necessity of a particular agency. That is, the agency can do it as long as it doesn't negate the business's broader mission. A particular agency, its policies can have a disparate impact as long as it's, you know, doing what it's set out to do. And if remedying the disparate impact means shifting its focus, then the courts can't mandate that the agency do that. What came out from the lower court was that the MTC's goal was to enhance global economic competitiveness. And so that extensions on the BART, which were the real issue, which was extending the BART or building new capital projects for the BART, were really in the interests of global economic competitiveness, and they could be justified on those grounds. I know that's kind of complicated, but it, it gets to your point, which is that what the case showed was that how transit was understood, it wasn't understood as, we, you know, it didn't have an explicitly social justice mission or it wasn't gearing its, it didn't, you know, the MTC had very little in its policies about transit as that's supposed to promote exchange or non-idiocy to use all my abstract language, but that, yeah, the goal is to promote economic competitiveness and that that justifies any disparate impact that might result from its funding priorities. And you also, you write about another fight, which is related to this issue of global competitiveness dominating public transit policymaking, which was the failed fight to stop BART's Oakland airport connector. And then you also write about another fight, which at first blush isn't really related, which was a successful one block to block the effort to relocate Oakland's centrally located bus mall, which, of course, was also an attempt to relocate the poor people who ride the bus. Both were fights that were deeply embedded in these competing visions for what Oakland in particular and cities in general should be. These so-called world-class cities, meaning one that is attractive to mobile rich individuals and to mobile capital, 
or a city that works for the people who live there. Explain these two struggles and how they and how they fit together. The fight against the Oakland Airport connector. The fight kind of had a number of different roots, but one of the most significant was the sense that Bart has kind of hired this company that designs ski lifts to build this short but really expensive connection between the Oakland airport to the BART. The reality is that they were doing this at a time when AC Transit was cutting service and the sense that this was totally unfair. It connects with that other fight that you mentioned, which was the fight to keep Oakland bus riders in in downtown Oakland and to stop the kind of relocation of the bus hub because I think they were in reaction to the kind of same sort of the broader urban policy agenda that has defined so many cities, which is how do we in an increasingly competitive world attract fleet-footed capital? What that really means is making cities more attractive to elite consumers, whether they're tourists flying in or whether they're people trying to enjoy downtown Oakland and don't want the quote-unquote riffraff around. It's the same set of policy approaches, I guess, where in so many cases, cities sacrifice public services for those who are stuck there or who live there in the interest of attracting folks with more money to live there or enjoy the city on their own terms. So that kind of question of global economic competitiveness, it's right there too, right? It's the Oakland Airport Connector is going to make us more globally competitive. We're going to be able to finally compete with San Francisco, which, you know, connected their airport with BART long ago. Or we are going to be able to compete with other cities because our downtown is going to be attractive for shoppers. And and in both cases, transit becomes a site of struggle, to put it bluntly. It becomes a site of struggle for these competing visions of the city, a city for fleet-footed capital or a city for, you know, the people who ride the bus every day. A big part of your argument is how the sort of neoliberal order imposes these sorts of choices as seeming trade-offs. And you have a really great chapter about amalgamated transit union, local 192 struggle with management amidst the post-financial crisis austerity. And now some rider advocates backed management. Explain how it is the way in which austerity imposed from the top, how it has this effect of, of displacing conflict downward making the core source of the cuts less visible and thus pitting workers and and customers, groups who not only share fundamental interests, but can indeed be one in the same person, how it pits them against one another. Sometimes they do it through the press. <laughs> and oftentimes, and this was certainly the case in this instance where you have transit workers who are members of the local 192 who are amidst, you know, every three years they enter contract negotiations and, you know, following the economic crisis, there's a big question on the cost of their pensions and management to save costs 
wants to cut pensions. And so, you know, there's a big fight over that. And the thing that happened, I think, in East Bay with ATU-192 was that management broke the procedure and that they imposed the contract. It didn't go to arbitration. It was just imposed. And so the, you know, workers in this instance did not call a strike, but they slowed down, which <laughs> they worked less fast. <laughs> and this became a, a real source of tension for some riders. The tensions were inflamed by press and management, who was had direct relations with the press, who basically were like, look, you know, pensions? Who still has pensions anymore? <laughs> uh, you know, not you who are riding the bus. So why are these kind of overfed workers demanding more? The questions of the degree to which conflicts between a broad working class and real estate capital or capital in general get displaced between different components of working people, the unionized and in many cases the non-unionized, because many people who ride the bus are, at least in the East Bay, are, are working class, but might not, they work at us in the service industry, or they don't have a, a job that kind of has the same protections or union protections. And so it's a tension that needs to be addressed head on, even though it might be a kind of fabricated tension, or a tension that's played up by those who benefit, by those who care about kind of more just cities. And so a lot of the chapter is about recreating a narrative around the union and the union's role in doing all sorts of things that have benefited the wider public, whether it is fighting for fair wages, eight-hour workday in 1919, or the Oakland general strike in 1946, in which it showed solidarity with striking department store workers, or in the last instance where it helped integrate transit-wise, bring transit to a neighborhood, a predominantly Black neighborhood that had somehow fallen through the cracks and had not had adequate service and the union's role in pushing transit in that area. So right now I work at the School of Labor and Urban Studies. So this is kind of one of the goals of the school in which I work. And my own research has been to kind of think about organized labor as a central component of any struggle for justice in cities. And the ways they can do that is by showing solidarity, not only for other unions, but for workers in general. The chapter is kind of like a history of that. And if you, I don't know if you've noticed this, but when the Oakland teachers went on strike like two weeks ago, yeah. two weeks ago, it was the ATU 192 that said, we're not crossing the picket line. I thought that was really powerful and you know spoke to some of the kind of things I bring up in the book. Yeah, the, the, the whole history of, of union struggles that you're, you're telling here is part of stitching transit workers in particular and unionized public sector workers in general back into this public that neoliberalism has abstracted them from, which is a necessary precondition for then pitting workers against the public. And as you just mentioned, this is something that the teachers unions who've been embracing a social unionism model have also been prioritizing. Yeah, it's, it's great. <laughs> We've been discussing how these conditions of austerity and the sort of the trickle-down devolution of budget cuts under a decentralized neoliberal system, how that serves to pit workers and riders against one another. And also, it plays a big role in making cities and, and localities and metropolitan regions 
feel like they have to spend public money to make their areas more desirable for mobile capital. And then that quest to be a global city in turn then exacerbates the scarcity because as localities are spending everything they can to do everything possible to appeal to mobile capital, there's even less money left for riders and for workers and for everyone else to fight over. And speaking in geography language, it's a complex scalar dynamic which creates real organizing challenges. And you quote John Katz, the Alliance for AC Transit's first president. He says, quote, one of the big struggles that we had or tensions we had is making sure that people at the grassroots understood what the real source of the problem was and didn't start pushing their anger at AC Transit when AC Transit was just the deliverer of bad news and that they should really aim higher, first at MTC, which was sort of the quasi-villain. But the real problem was the state tax structure, state government, and the federal government, not with agencies involved in delivering those cutbacks. To what extent have local transit activists been able to manage the complex scale at which this unjust transit system is administered? And to what extent have they found themselves stuck fighting within the dimensions imposed by the order that we live under? Yeah, I think some of the biggest, the most successful struggles have focused at that kind of meso scale, which is at the kind of um, the MTC, which does have, or the kind of master, what they call MPOs, master planning organizations, which distribute federal funds in particular ways to different transit agencies. The, the success has been at that level, which is forcing them to distribute those resources in equitable ways. The problem, of course, is that you just need more resources directed toward transit in general. I think the idea of jumping scale, um, <laughs> to use another term from geography, is important and requires national-based groups. And I think there are any number of of groups that are trying to do that, that are trying to think about federal transportation policy, but also keeping their eye on what's happening at the local scale and at MPO reform. There was a group called Gamaliel, which was a community-based organizing group that has national affiliates in different places that took on a number of transit issues. There's a transit equity network that I was doing a lot of work. You know, the Amalgamated Transit Union International at some point had taken on an initial initiative to build local transit unions in different places. And since they're an international, since they work across cities, there's a lot of possibility for building alliances across cities. The question of how you scale up and how you how you don't get mired in attacking the public agency that's been handed a pretty horrible, horrible deck is hard. You know, I think the goal of the book, of course, which is, you know, the book is a lot about how we talk about transit and why transit is important. I think what I like about the book is that it puts transit in conversation with all sorts of other areas of struggle, which is the right to the city framework. It's hard to separate struggles over transit from struggles over housing, from struggles in the workplace, to these broader questions around tax giveaways that all sorts of cities seem to be, have been engaged in and continue to be engaged in to the detriment of the people who rely on public services in those cities, that they're all related. And so 
transit being something that connects not only people to cities, but that connects any number of issues. And so if there's a way to fight for transit in ways that not only improve transit service, but that like seep into all these other areas that in which exploitation and inequity are prevalent, then that's great. And that's why in many ways I was attracted to transit. It seems like such a an issue that is central to so many other things. I mean, the book starts with a quote from um, a writer named Karen Smolovitz, which is basically like, of all the rights that exist, the right to health care, the right to food security, the right to X, Y, and Z, the right to an education, the right to transportation is the most central to each, because how do you get there? I come back to that because it's like, yes, that's why transportation is so central. And that's why struggles for transportation can open up all these other ways of fighting for a more just city. Does that make sense? Entirely. Kafoyato, thank you very much. Thank you. Kafue Ato is a professor at the CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies and the author of Rights in Transit, Public Transportation and the Right to the City in California's East Bay from University of Georgia Press. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that free time, which is both idle time and time for higher activity, has naturally transformed its possessor into a different subject, and they then enter into the direct production process as this different subject, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways. Our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling friends, family, whoever about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this podcast up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. Thank you.